G'day audience. David recently wrote a blog post titled The Russian Invasion of Ukraine. I am ashamed of being a Western citizen. And it's already received a significant amount of attention from some of our audience, as well as some pretty, pretty important people. So I figured we would take that blog post and just expand on that for an episode as perhaps uh, one of the most significant things that David's done uh, in the time of the podcast in terms of uh, attraction and attention. So um, I'll read the words of that blog post now. I feel compelled by a bone deep sense of shame to write this blog post about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the West's pathetic response to the invasion. It is the morning of Monday, 28th of February, as I write this post, so lots of things might change by the time you read this blog. Before Russia invaded Ukraine, I assumed that they would support separatist forces in the east of the country, as well as employing little green men to consolidate control of at least one third of Ukraine under pro-Russian control. I assumed that Russia would do this so that it could continue to chip away at Ukraine over the next few years, and so that it could continue to show the world how weak the West is. I assumed that the West would do nothing to stop this from happening and that we would watch the Ukrainians dangle from a rope for the rest of the 2020s. When it became clear that President Putin was going for regime change in and total control of Ukraine, I had two thoughts. Wow, President Putin is confident and he is absolutely convinced that the West is enfeebled and ineffective. President Putin being confident about his ability to get away with doing horrible things is not new. But being so sure that the West would be useless marks as a new low for Western liberal democracies. Since 9-11, too much of the West has wasted its young people's well-being and lives and its state's treasure on ill-defined, badly managed and poorly executed wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. These wars achieved nothing of lasting value and will be remembered for the rise of Islamic State and an ignominious withdrawal from Kabul. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan demonstrates that the West will use its power to achieve revenge or retribution and regime change only when the odds of serious consequences appear to be low. As we now know, the West is terrible at working out the odds of winning wars. Since at least 9-11, and probably since the genocide in Rwanda, Western political leaders have not had the courage to use power when it is needed, nor the compassion to use power when inaction should be intolerable. The West has now had an entire generation of leaders who like having power as long as they don't have to risk using it to achieve anything worthwhile for the future of humanity. I am ashamed of the fact that the West has leaders who like having power, but who neither have the courage nor compassion to use power when they have to do difficult things that need to be done. And now we have the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 43 million Ukrainians' lives will never be the same again because the West couldn't tell the difference between a war that matters and the supposedly low-risk wars that we wasted most of the 21st century prosecuting. 43 million Ukrainians wanted a quiet life, not to lose their lives or to have a life in a shattered nation. The Ukrainian president doesn't have very much power, but he is willing to use what he has to encourage his people to stand up to a ruthless and sclerotic ex-superpower that only understands force and violence. Meanwhile, Western leaders attempt to sound anguished and serious while they do too little too late. How President Putin sees the world is not a mystery, and how Russia understands and uses violence is not a mystery. But how Western leaders can stand up in front of cameras and microphones and not sound ashamed is a mystery to me. Power is a tool that should be used courageously and compassionately by Western liberal democracies. The West has regularly failed to use power effectively, largely because of the self-referential mediocrity of our leaders. Sadly, they are not sufficiently self-aware to sound ashamed when they talk, so I will have to feel ashamed for them. The ultimate hidden truth of the world 
is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961-2020 to Welcome to Blind Insights. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? I'm good, Tim. Other than the fact that I felt ashamed enough to write the blog post. <laughs> well, I, I feel as if having read that, I, I think we should all feel that shame um, on, on behalf, I guess, of, of our leaders. For Australia, not really committing to do much. I certainly feel a bit of shame. Yeah, I'm mostly uh, anti-war, I guess you could say. I'm not necessarily a pacifist, but yeah, I guess there's that cliche that no one really wants that to happen, especially in most of my life. The wars that have been fought haven't really been, uh, from, yeah, exactly from Australia's yeah. perspective. But um, you know, I was thinking yesterday about making a Facebook post that basically said, "Yeah, I'd be happy to throw in." <laughs> yeah, and that's the key difference with this as a war. And you know, you rereading it then really made me think of a better way of articulating where the shame comes from at some level. And that is, my students for so long when I was teaching would say, "Why don't you get into politics?" The people I'm now working with in comms and marketing go, why aren't you in politics? Yeah. And I always gave them the same answer because it means selling out to a party and being used and abused until they own you, Mm. until they will trust you to have a seat, by which point what is going to be left of your ability to have an impact other than to be another party hack. So I think part of the shame I'm feeling is should have I fought the fight to be the voice inside of a parliament screaming at these idiots? Mm. Or am I better off being outside of it, screaming at these idiots? And I, you know, decisions were long since made, and I can say a lot more things freely being outside of the parties, screaming at the idiots. Well, that seems important, though, right? I mean, at the end of the at the end of the day, who do the idiots actually listen to, anyway? You know, no, do they, no yeah. idea. It's it's hard to tell whether they even get anything productive out of the internal kind of shouting. So. No. Um, they talk within their echo chambers to people who've demonstrated they want to be mini me's. Otherwise, they would not be there as advisors. Yeah. So you know, yeah, exactly. So to get anywhere of significance, you've already sacrificed the part that allows you to speak out. <laughs> anyway, yep. yeah. And listeners, to put this in context, you know, again, I can't see all the numbers of how well the blog post is doing, but it's doing very well on LinkedIn in particular. But the significant thing is everywhere I've posted it, having got many likes, I don't expect to. This is uncomfortable stuff. Mm. But the number of private messages I've got is really significant. Going, thank you for writing that. I agree. I've had several from serving and retired military personnel going, you know, we fought some dumb shit wars. Mm. And here we are in a war we would have happily helped first out of a plane to fight. Mm. And we're not going to be in it. Mm. It's a very perceptive piece of kind of commentary. And then, you know, even just yesterday, I think I read on Al Jazeera that the US basically ruled out doing anything in the no-fly zone, which is, again, it was just like, oh, well, we knew that was going to happen because of David's blog post. Literally, it's it's sort of written in the sand, you know? Um, Yeah, but at least today, the former, I think he was deputy commander of NATO, mm. uh, Sir Richard Sheriff from the UK, at least explained why NATO can't do, well, why they won't do the no-fly zone, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the great advantage of Sir Richard Sheriff now being a retired general. He said they won't do the no-fly zone because they can't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They are not actually sufficiently organised to bring the NATO air forces together 
to actually do something that would work and could be maintained and could be logistically supported. Wow. Even if they could reach the decision, they wouldn't be able to implement it okay. if they reached the decision. Well, that seems like a good segue, right? The, blo- the blog addresses how we're reacting to this situation, but perhaps it might be a good idea for some of the, the lay people who haven't kept up with this, you know, I guess what we would call decades long tension uh, and, and now conflict. What is Russia doing? What's their force like? It seems pretty expansive. How, how do we get here? <laughs> okay, well, again, we'll go through a few angles of that, I think, to give people multiple ways in to understand. So we'll start with the collapse of the Soviet Union Mm. and then move forward to the different paths countries go on and then move forward to the Russian military because they're three sort of separate things. So as the Soviet Union disintegrates, Ukraine was one of the first countries to be willing to negotiate to get rid of its nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. It was a corrupt mess. It was dysfunctional, but it had this idea it could be something else. It hadn't wanted to be part of the Soviet Union. In World War II, mm. um, lots of Ukrainians saw the Germans in the first few hours as liberators until they realized they were just going to be persecuted by a new bunch of thugs in shiny boots. Mm. That for the Ukrainians, nothing changed. Oh, the Soviets are bastards to us. Now the Nazis will be bastards to us. <laughs> But what they wanted was a chance to be something else. So Ukraine is a complicated place. And yes, historians can waffle on until the end of time. Ukraine's had multiple different identities, yadi yadi blah, blah. Ukraine has been connected to Europe, connected to Poland, connected to Russia, yadi yadi blah, blah. The only important thing now is does self-determination matter or not? Mm. And if it does matter... What Ukraine chose from the early 1990s onward is we are going to look towards more democratic rule, more accountability, more transparency, being more like our prosperous and successful Western neighbours than our equally traumatised, damaged and backward Eastern neighbours. And they didn't have a clue how they were going to get there. And literally up until five years ago, it still looked like a corrupt mess. But it was a corrupt mess trying to head in a direction of not being a corrupt mess anymore. And for democracy to gradually mean more and more. On the other hand, we have Russia that came out of the collapse of the Soviet Union going, hang on, we used to run an empire. Our empire is gone. And something that the elite of the empire, the people like Putin, the KGB officers, you know, the, the, the crazies in intelligence and the top part of the Russian military have never accepted is the West didn't undermine you. Your system sucked. The Soviet Union collapsed because it was detrimental to the vast majority of its citizens. And the final straw for most Soviet citizens was going, all right. Living in a disaster of a state is bad enough, but you're now telling me that my 15-year-old kid in three years' time is going to have to do conscription and go to Afghanistan to fight a pointless war to maintain this regime that treats us all badly? Mm. No. That's finally what broke the Soviet Union, was their own incompetence, their own greed, their own avarice, their own delusion of grandeur. Now, that's almost impossible 
for Putin and his inner circle of people similar aged him. Now, you can remember Putin's 69. At something like the age of 20 or 21, he literally walked into a KGB building to find out how to join. Who knowingly or willingly ever walked into a KGB office in 1970 St. Petersburg? You'd have to be insane or a little baby authoritarian. So we know what Putin is. Mm. Do, you, do, do you think that there's a an extent to which this is sort of a, a final uh, stand, a a kind of, um, you know, fuck it, I'm I'm old now, I might as well. Yes, it's yeah. precisely that. Okay. This is, and listeners, if you're interested, um, there's an amazing YouTuber called Vlad uh, Vexler, whose family are Jewish but he was born in Russia. His family left for Israel in the early 90s. Mm. So he understands Russia, still has friends. They're still, you know, just gets what's going on. And his explanation of Putin's rise and what Putin is, is probably the best of anybody's and is the way to understand it in, say, 39 or 40 minutes. Mm. And I'll send him the link to put in the, um, you know, the show notes to understand Putin and what he's doing. Mm. Because, uh, you know, Vlad Vexler's explanation is just fantastic. Putin is essentially someone who was a true believer in the authoritarian Soviet state, was a genuine empire, was man- maintaining the brilliant tradition of Russian empire, was, you know, taking names and kicking heads <laughs> and going, we are a force to be reckoned with. Now, Putin has even come out in interviews and said, well, if there isn't a Russia, why should there be a world? Mm. making the point that if push comes to shove, he'll nuke everything That's if wild. Russia can't be powerful. Now, yeah. whether he's talking to the loonies or he actually believes it in both cases, what we almost have to hope for now is a decapitation operation by some clan within the power structure in Russia, just no taking thing. out the elite. Yeah. Because, sorry, because there, there is a significant support for maybe that sentiment. Is that is that right? I mean, Putin, as I understand it, his his um most uh uh when he's been kind of um, most favorable in the polls is when he was after Crimea. Like he, there is, I think, a, a genuine Russian sentiment, or at least um that's how the polls come across. That when he does these kinds of um take over the world, like let's make Russia strong again. Uh, things that, that the people actually support that, or or is that, or, or are the polls people, lying? Certainly, people over thirty. Okay. Certainly, people whose lives have got worse since the end of the Soviet Union. Yeah. So people over forty now, not over thirty anymore. Probably yeah. over forty. But you've got to remember three key things. There are three common threads to life in Russia. The first is fear, mm. and that is not that you'll be repressed like North Korea; that your whole village will be sent to re-education. Now, here, you might be the person who protests against the war in Ukraine. And you might be the one who gets away with it, or you might be the one who suddenly gets kicked out of uni, can't get a job, can't get an apartment. And the rest of your life will be the descent into living on the streets until the cops beat you to death for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. So it's not the state will take out your entire family, but you'll never know how bad it's going to end for you. The second thing is trauma. The trauma in Eastern Europe from World War II, the Cold War, the collapse of communism, everything after has just been generational trauma, which is an absolute real thing. And anyone who gets 
or anyone who believes the delusion that Russians are just like us. No, they're not. They've experienced this incredible level of trauma. And as a consequence of the fear that everything could end from one bad decision and the trauma that is in everyone's generation, everyone's family, that everyone talks about, remember when this happened, remember when that happened quietly around the family table, there is a desire for what Vlad Vexler calls preemptive obedience. You be obedient even before you know what to be obedient to. Mm. So don't care what the poll numbers are in Russia because no poll in Russia is a real number. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's just meaningless data. Um, so to contextualize, you know, again, going back to states, we jumped onto Putin, but if mm. Ukraine has taken tiny little steps towards what it doesn't want to be, mm-hmm. Russia is in an infinitely worse situation in that it doesn't want to acknowledge in the main, certainly the power elite don't want to acknowledge that the Soviet Union fell because it was crap. Mm-hmm. The Americans didn't beat them. They internally combusted. Now, the Americans go, we won the Cold War. Could you guys please shut up? You didn't win the Cold War. The Soviet Union internally combusted. The better a worldwide debate we have about this, the more we discredit the crazies around Putin. Mm. So Putin comes to power in a state that's lost everything, can't get most of it back, is now ignored despite having a nuclear arsenal. And really, the older he gets, the more he's making his mission, the resurrection of a Russian empire. Mm-hmm. And there can't be a Russian empire without Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And listeners, please understand, step one of this is the war to take the territory of Ukraine. That is the nice bit. We are currently seeing the nice bit from mm-hmm. Putin and his inner circle's perspective. The next bit is what Putin and his inner circle call denazification. They believe that anyone political in Ukraine is a Nazi who is being supported by America, and the denazification phase will be a slow genocide of anyone involved in politics, anyone involved in activism, anyone with too much education in Ukraine, until all that is left is people working in factories and on farms. Mm. It will quite possibly not be as overt as Pol Pot killing 20% of the population in Cambodia, Mm. but it probably won't be much better. Wow. That's what we're watching. We're watching phase run of controlling the ground until the FSB and the Chechen militias and every other bunch of psychos like Wagner Group go in and just start eliminating everyone who gives Ukraine an independent democratic identity. Mm. That's what comes next, kiddies. And by kiddies, I mean our political elite because they're the kids in this whole debate. The ones who have power don't use it. So kiddies, on your conscience for your last 30 years of crap leadership will be the systematic slow genocide of everyone who can imagine a better future for Ukraine who ever spoke up. Is the... I had read a little bit about Russia effectively 
uh, about to kind of collapse, right? And that this, <clears throat> this move effectively um, prolongs that, as in takes it, draws it out from being that they were going to be effectively economically staffed within 10 years to maybe being that in 50 because, you know, Ukraine is actually a, a bit of a... Yep, they'll just asset strip Ukraine. Yep. yep. Yeah, when, and and Ukraine is actually a pretty uh, asset rich in the sense that I think it's like wheat or something. I, I, yep, Ukraine is a bread bowl. Yeah, it grows go. so much food that everyone needs and wants. See, this is one of the reasons that they won't knock all the Russian banks off Swift because mm. the Europeans have to pay for gas, but lots of countries would be dealing with starvation within six months if they can't buy wheat from Ukraine and Russia. So right. in some ways, the West looks weak for not being willing to turn Russia off a swift entirely. But for the sake of people not freezing in their homes and people literally being able to buy affordable food, some parts of Russia's ability have to be left on. But you know, to talk about the, the decline of Russia, of course, this is the problem. There is only one recognisable figure to most people in Russia, and it's President Putin. Mm. Below Putin are the inner circle of the mini Putins, the ex-people like him who believe the Soviet Union didn't fail. It, you know, it was white-handed by the evil West. Yeah, like we're capable enough to white-ant you. <laughs> Dream on. Mm. You know, wow. So wow. essentially this inner circle all hold the same belief as him that the Soviet Union didn't fall. It was destroyed by the West, which, of course, is not true. But they are not going to buy into that because their power comes from selling this idea of Russia can be great again. And the ultimate book to understand modern Russia is a book by Peter Pomerantsev called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. <laughs> and the big point he makes in that book, and Vlad Vexler makes even more clearly, is this regime doesn't believe in anything other than Russia should be a global power and they should be in charge of it. That's all they believe. Everything else is totally flexible. Mm. So anything can be done. So as a consequence of that and the trauma and fear and preemptive obedience of the Russian population, this place is unstable, unreliable, inconsistent, a mess. You know, Putin was warned in 2014-15, you take Crimea, you're going to create economic havoc. And he went, okay did it anyway yeah now part of the reason he did it is because he'd been working on hybrid warfare and he needed to prove that russia could screw the world up so he did guess what little green men work <laughs> guess what blowing syrian cities to pieces works it allows dictators to stay in power so everything he's now using on ukraine he's tested in smaller things now, if we look back even further, the Chechen capital, Grozny, was basically bombed back into the Stone Age. <laughs> there wasn't a city left by the time the Russians were finished. Mm. Literally, they employed all the young uh, Chechens to rebuild the city because everything had to be rebuilt, which is exactly what they'll do in Ukraine. They'll blow it to absolute pieces, get rid of anyone who can think, anyone who can imagine an independent Ukraine, and anyone who's willing to just bow down will get paid to rebuild the country as a province of Russia. Mm. They've already done it. They did it in Grozny. They've proved it works again for Assad in Syria. 
they basically beat the shit out of Georgia in a very quick war because, you know, unlike Ukraine, Georgia was just not ready. They were still, it was 2008, they were still a corrupt mess. They hadn't moved part of to, to define their own identity yet like the Ukrainians have. But so the, the thing, the Ukrainian forces, um, like, because Russia is a, <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a big, big country, big state with a lot, a lot of people, and uh, let's mm. say a lot of old resources. So we're still comparing, like, effectively what, even though it's not an ex superpower, it's you know still a large power yeah. to Ukraine, which is you know, it, let's say its history is relatively short of of mm. sort of building, um, uh, you know, a, a kind of military capacity, military yeah. Cap- capacity. So, yeah. Yeah. And here's where it gets very interesting, because what we've seen is that really because Putin had perfected the little green man and because mm. he's had his scientists working on some advanced kit, I think the inner circle genuinely believed they had built a modern military that could deal with modern war. Mm. The thing they're forgetting is the only places they've used force, they've simply obliterated cities and let loose, you know, bloodthirsty mercenaries to do terrible things. They have not prosecuted a modern war within the rules of modern war. They don't know what that's like. All they know is how to blow a city to pieces and to literally terrorise and indiscriminately murder a population. That is all the Russian military understands. Yep. Excluding Spetsnaz and, you know, elite forces who can go in and play little green man. Well, <laughs> this takes more than little green man, so they will resort to destroy the city and then crush the population. So what the Russians are seeing here is that, guess what? Conscripts don't want to fight. Even full-time, uh, full-time paratroopers aren't looking very enthusiastic and fighting very well. Whoa. Right. You know, there are rumours that entire garrisons of conscripts in Russia have flatly said no to deploying. How long do you think it is before they start leveraging, you know, hurting their own people back home to force... Uh, uh, you know to force those people to get a little motivated do you think that's on well, the cards there are massive convoys moving their way across ukraine as we record today right that literally are going to do what was done to grozny and what was done in syria go all right we're not doing a good job of house-to-house fighting in cities because guess what the ukrainians have been doing a good job of going what can we learn from baghdad what can we learn from mogadishu what can we learn from syria what can we learn from afghanistan the Ukrainians have been getting ready for, we can't fight them in open ground. And this is why in the first six hours, it looked like the Russians were doing stunningly well because mm. the Ukrainians are like, if we line up in open ground, we're all going to die. <laughs> why would we do that? Yeah. But you've got to remember every day now, the Ukrainians run out of fuel. The Ukrainians run out of ammo. They run out of food. My guess is they've got stashes everywhere. And they will be able to move from stash to stash to stash for so long until the stashes are gone. Mm. And at that point, the Russians will just roll in another 50,000 conscripts with heavy artilleries and rocket launchers. They'll have a circle around cities and they will simply level the cities and damn the consequences. And eventually, as the civilians flow out of the cities, they will do what they did in Grozny. They will grab any fighting age male, pull him aside and probably shoot half of them in the head and turn the rest into refugees in work camps. So we know from, let's say, from your blog post, right? Like 
we, I, I certainly was surprised. I thought this was going to be much more of a show, let's say, than something that um, Russia is taking so seriously. I think you said yeah. that you were surprised in the blog post, but we know now that they have taken it seriously initially, that they're just going to yeah. continue to take it seriously. Is that like, as in, I think it's, that's, they, that's they, quite dire. Yeah. yeah, they fall now into what they know. Mm. What they know is how to surround and devastate cities. And yeah. to mercilessly terrorize the population when they eventually walk out of those cities on the verge of starvation and out of ammo. Yeah. And they know at the end of the day, NATO isn't going to do a damn thing. Yeah. I, what would it look like if they if they did do something? Like what's what's an example, let's say, of even in in, in recent history? of the west using their their power as maybe the, um they could like what what would be a reasonable expectation of them here you know especially when russia has uh, made so many nuclear threats like what's 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 the appropriate response well the last example really of the west standing up to russia in an overt way would be when berlin was blockaded and the allies at the end of world war 2 flew planes in and supplied a whole city from the air Mm. This was in an era before the kind of weapon systems we have now. So in reality, assume NATO is competent, which I have no evidence to back up. (laughs) And they actually decide we're going to stick a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Mm. That basically means on day one, they need to take out every mobile Russian radar unit and every surface-to-air missile unit, which means Putin will go nuclear war in two hours if you don't stop. Yep. At which point NATO has to say, you will notice every plane we are flying over Ukraine is you know, older than fifth generation. It's four or 4.5. Nothing is stealth. Nothing is capable of carrying a strategic nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. That is all we are going to use to do this no-fly zone. We have not increased the readiness of our nuclear forces. This is about saying that 43 million people moving their way towards being a modern democracy and caring about rights and caring about rule of law is worth a risk. And if you want to threaten to nuke the world, it will be on you that the only thing you will be remembered for is destroying the world, being the evilest, dumbest human to ever live. Yeah. And if we don't have the guts to do that, why would he stop? Yeah, yeah, that's right. He's sort of, even if he's not necessarily bluffing us, you have to remind him that uh, that, that this is about legacy, and and yep. that it's not necess- it's not going to go the way that he thinks he d- it 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 will, you know. So you have to almost call him out on it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah I, and and it is a monumental risk. Yep. Yeah, you know, he may just have the quintessential tantrum and throw two or three nukes into Ukraine. Mm. going if i can't have it no one can but, but this, it, it really is like it's it it really is like a a, a school playground dynamic though isn't it like if you don't stand up yes. to that bully it's just gonna you're just gonna keep getting your lunch money taken or whatever you know yeah um, because the point is the mini putins who are positioning to take power from him mm. have to be even more ruthless than him to eventually take his power away So whatever comes next in Russia is either the people positioning now or some part of Russia goes, okay, it was bad enough that our lives were shit. Mm -hmm. It was bad enough that we were about to wreck 43 million Ukrainians' lives, but we are about 
to be the population that let our leadership use nuclear weapons to prove a point that we matter, that we mean yeah. something as a country. Well, the only way Russia will mean something or matter is if it doesn't do something insane. Otherwise, it will be the pariah of the world for as long as we can record history. So, less, oh, sorry. Sorry, and listen to President G, mate, think about your legacy. You could very easily go down the same path that all you are remembered for is breaking your own country and whatever chunk of the world, you know, you destroyed because of your avarice. Would and it, Western leagues. Is, is, sorry, you go. And it seems very far-fetched, but how, how much of a pivotal role could Beijing play here? You know, could do they really have the power to kind of stop all this look at what's going on realize that it's in their future at least in some way Beijing is so desperate for energy it will probably tolerate Putin no matter what okay it also gives them a chance to learn what happens if you do crazy shit yeah so one level what Xi has learned from this is hey I could invade Taiwan and the West won't do so at all yep on the other hand, what he's learned from this is, hmm, are the Taiwanese as motivated as the Ukrainians? Quite possibly. Yeah. So yeah. you can invade, but unless you're willing to scorch earth it, like Putin is prepared to do in Ukraine, that's the difference. At the moment, we don't know. We know that she will happily do a slow genocide on his Muslim population. <laughs> mm. Putin's going to do a faster genocide on anyone who thinks and imagines a better future in Ukraine. That's the plan. It's called denazification. People don't take it seriously because they go, how could they even use the word denazification? What's they got to do with modern Ukraine? Well, we're not talking about modern Ukraine. We're talking about Putin's idea of how the world works. And he's in a circle's idea of how the world works. And the only reason they're the inner circle is because they've risen to that point because they agree with him when necessary to get the level of power they have. Do you think that there is a de-escalation strategy for Putin having realized all this? Do you think that there is a, you know, even, even if it's really far-fetched that, you know, NATO is capable, all of that kind of thing, you know, the, the kind of perfect scenario that um, we convince him that this is stupid or insane is maybe a better way to put it. Um uh, it, it, w w what what does Russia stand to gain from now backing down versus uh, continuing with their the kind of strategy? I, the strategy? I, I can't see at this late stage what we could offer that would make him seriously withdraw and go, it's all okay. I lost, but it's all okay. Mm. Because his whole identity is, I am you know, the macho shirt off president. I'm going to rebuild Russian pride. We are going to be a Russian empire again. And if you can't even have Ukraine, your founding city, wanting to be a part of that, what does it say about the dream? You know, at the very least, we need to be making sure the Ukrainians never run out of food, never run out of fuel, never run out of ammo, never run out of medical support. I have... No idea how far we can push it, but we need to be willing to push to the point of going, okay, you're going to threaten to use tactical nukes. Guess what? We can't stop you doing something so stupid 
but you will be remembered as the person who used nuclear weapons in Europe, who valued life to such a small degree, mm. who valued thousands of years of history in such a small way that destroying it, you, you don't think that matters? You think you know, mythical, magical, imperial Russia is more important than everything that is. That's a scary reality. I, I like myself and and my peers sort of really imagined that we were past this, and I'm not sure whether that's just because you know. No, it's a delusion you were sold. It's not any of your fault. Right. You were basically taught crap by people who turned their wish fulfillment into lessons. Mm. Oh, it just yeah. I, well, we haven't seen it before, you know. Like, in, all of a sudden, no. we're living through you know major historical events and. You know, I, it, it, this feels now, the way that you're talking about it, almost more significant than 9-11 in, in the sense it is. that... This is yeah. the real deal. 9-11 was a freak show. Mm. It was some crazy dudes came up with a brilliant plan, kicked a superpower in the balls, and then kneed its nose into its brain and gave it brain damage. <laughs> yeah. And then brain damage superpower went, I want retribution. <laughs> it broke <the> nose. <laughs> And guess what? Deputy dog from UK and deputy dog from Australia went, hell yeah, let's roll. Yeah. 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 That uh, was a farce, a farce that cost thousands of lives across the world. Lovely young people from every country, immaterial of what country, what they believe. Their lives didn't have to turn out that way and end the way they did. Mm. Now we've got the real deal. Now we've got what happens when a belligerent person who is sane but holds a vision of the world that can only be seen as insane the idea of rebuilding an empire by destroying a country that is part of the foundation myth of your country Mm. so you have to you have to destroy the modern to get back your historical view that's loopy yeah this is the real deal this is 43 million people go under for the sake of a delusion of grandeur This is what power exists for. This is what the Cold War was meant to be about, stopping things like this happening. Mm. And as Sir Richard Sheriff said, you know, we are now back to a position just like the end of World War II going to the Cold War, where we are not ready for what needs to be done. And if we don't get up to speed quickly, we will watch Putin take whatever he wants until he goes too far and it's cataclysmic. Yep. So be prepared for a new new cycle and a new world i guess yeah Um, and very differently to the cold war cycle mm. the leaders during the cold war had often been the people who fought or at least were close to the fighting in world war ii they understood the cost of violence putin thinks about violence like a kgb officer it's just a tool for messing people up doesn't touch him personally wow so he goes, well, I can mess you up with some fear and some trauma. You'll become compliant. So it's like really that opposite of Andy McNabb. He's the he's the bad psychopath, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Andy McNabb, again, is the perfect example of someone who realized if he didn't join the British Army, was going to join a gang and end up in jail for murder. So better to become an SAS operator and kill people and get you know get medals. Mm. But again, it's that difference of the big lie since the end of the Cold War is violence will never be the answer again. Violence is never an answer. It's a tool to get to some answers where people will not listen to reason. There has only ever been a couple of choices. 
there's been reason, there's been, you know, twist their arm a little bit, or there's violence, break their arm. There are always three options, and we took one of the three off the table in the 1990s, and guess what? The Russians didn't. Mm. It's their preferred tool. Right. Well, this is relatively dire. I feel as if we've covered the background, what's happening, what's likely to happen. How should our listeners as individuals move forward and what should their expectations of their countries be and what can they do, if anything? Yeah. How, okay. how should we best thing, I, best thing I can suggest for all of you to do is go and read or listen to a book called The Heart and the Fist by Eric Greitens. Eric Greitens was a young guy who got full scholarships to go to Duke and then Oxford could have had tenure uh, at Oxford and instead became a Navy SEAL and literally started, um, you know, the reinforcement cycle just before 9-11 happened Mm. and spent the first five years of the war on terror as, you know, a junior SEAL officer leading teams all over the world in the war on terror. Retired, wrote this amazing book, you know, The Heart and the Fist, then became a governor uh, then basically tortured his mistress, and then his life fell to bits. Let's forget about everything after writing The Heart and the Fist. But go read The Heart and the Fist because The Heart and the Fist is about an important thing he worked out even before he became a SEAL, mm. and that is you have to have the courage to do what is necessary, and you have to have the compassion to stop you using violence in an unrestrained way. So the lesson of The Heart and the Fist is the only way to function in a complex world is to both be able to be incredibly compassionate, but if need be, to lay violence down to stop people who don't listen to reason. Mm -hmm. And the example Eric Greitens gave the moment this became clear is as an undergraduate, he was volunteering in a refugee camp in Croatia for Bosnian uh, refugees from the wars in Yugoslavia. And they'd got the kids who were all quite traumatised from being through the war, a couple of pups to just to have some dogs to look after and play with. And one day, two of the Croatian guards walked in and shot the dogs in front of the kids. And Greitens felt totally impotent. And went, what are they doing? Well, of course, there'd been old enmities between the Croatians and the Bosnians. But this was an example where reason wouldn't have worked and he couldn't do a damn thing because those two guards had firearms in their hands. But that's when he realised you can't just have compassion and you can't just use violence. If you just use compassion, you'll get steamrolled by people who just use violence. You have to have the compassion to do the right thing when possible, but be willing to use violence when necessary, but to have the compassion to pull you back from the brink of using more violence than is necessary to get a better outcome. And it's the hardest, ugliest lesson of the modern world. And for all the times I taught that book, no one ever liked that week, ever. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I don't know how many discussions that we've had and you know even episodes possibly with um you know strategicon about like the end of kind of kinetic warfare and this it but it's just we're not we're not over that this so it's it's a difficult thing to do you think that we're in any danger of that expanding to here like if let's 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 kind of entertain the nuclear war threat from putin 
in Australia, let's say, let's do cover the, the three kind of major self-important uh, Western entities from, from our perspective, which is Australia, UK, and US. What actual threat is there to uh, residents of uh, actually seeing any nuclear attack? Okay, if Putin hurls a couple of tactical nukes, can the world restrain itself? Mm. Or will it throw a couple back? Yeah. If it throws a couple back, can Putin or will Putin stop? Or will he go, if there can't be a Russian empire, fuck it. Let's burn everything. Yeah. So we've got to remember at the end of World War II, Hitler was at the point where he felt Germany had failed him and it had failed him. So who cares? Let's just burn everything. So in his drug-addled state in the end of World War II, he was at the point of, okay, it's all going to burn, so be it. Now, Putin doesn't appear to be drug-addled for any evidence we have, but his vision of how the world should be and how the world is don't fit together, and his cognitive dissonance does not allow to revise his position. But there's an awful lot of people in Russia, and someone's got to be able to take out Putin in his inner circle and go, hands in the air. We are not that regime. We just took them out. So should it end up being any risk to Australia? No. Okay. Could the UK quite possibly be affected by having radioactive clouds blow over it or even potentially being hit if there was an escalation? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This is the ridiculous thing of the Germans conditioning themselves into violence is never the answer for 70 years. Don't those dumbasses understand? The problem was not that Germany had weapons. The problem was Germany had a psychotic Nazi ideology. The problem is your ideology, your worldview. Weapons are just a tool. And you need to have the weapons around so you can say to people with psychotic ideologies, hey, shithead, yeah. do you really want to do that? So, I mean, this sounds... I don't... I don't I'm not trying to have a rebuttal but it sounds very similar to the the idea of the nra like you know that guns don't kill people people kill people in the case of individual weapons in the hands of individual people Mm. where they can be drunk and not lock them up at home um weapons are different to when states have the ability to use their trained professionals to manage and apply violence in controlled ways yeah Yes, there is a parallel in what you're talking about. But what I would say, the difference here is everyone's trained, everything's secured, and you're not allowed near it unless you are sane. Again, one of the ironies of the military is they're looking for the people who are least likely to do something dumb because they know they're unleashing so much violence. Yeah, I guess we're talking about effectively the police of the world, right? Not, yeah. like the, the comparison is that you, you, know, you wouldn't want a world where the police in the US don't, aren't armed well. Yeah, yeah, at, at least while there are guns and stuff around. So, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. You know, the, the, there are and people who don't necessarily mean well who can get their hands on weapons. And at this stage, everyone has to be prepared for that with like their equivalent of a nuclear deterrent. Yeah. Yep. And it would be beautiful to say we could be in a weapon-free world. Okay, who is going to genetically modify the human brain to get us to that point? <laughs> that's what it will take. Because Kumbaya, warm and fuzzy and nice, worked until we had too many people and not enough stuff. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Now we've got too many people and not enough stuff. The nice ideas, even if 50 years ago, don't ring true in the same way because population pressure, environmental degradation, resource scarcity are all taking things to a new edge where if we are not equally courageous and compassionate, 
we're in trouble. Like Greitens is proof you can't send a young, brilliant guy to war for five years and expect him to be okay. But that doesn't diminish the quality of the heart and the fist as a lesson about the need to combine courage and compassion. Mm. And the greatest form of courage is to be able to use violence when necessary and then stop. And then it's, it becomes a question of, okay, so how do we ramp down those tensions by make, making resources less scarce? Let's, you know, let's yep. develop the new future or whatever it is. But, you know, even that in itself, getting there has a lot of problems. You look at all of the uh, green energy mines and stuff throughout Africa and South America. Yep. And that, you know, that creates problems and tensions and conflict there it's you know this is yeah. going to be part of our future i think that should be something that we accept and talk about um and and don't necessarily have a bitterness about but maybe just a small melancholy be melancholy but hold our leaders to account they can't keep having power just because they like it and swanning about so they and their friends have a nice life which is essentially what western leadership has been doing for 30 years but gosh, does, doesn't it, uh, uh, there's a part of me that's slightly hopeful for better leaders just by virtue of the, the leaders that we had in, in wartime a hundred years ago, where did a lot Infinitely more better. better. So yeah. are we going to get back to that stage? Of, there's the power of existential threat. Mm. All the years where students said to me, David, why don't you get into politics? No, no, no. What I'm saying to you guys is if I'd done that, then it would have been David versus the machine. Mm. You know, people your age need to do it with 30 of you joining the same party. Yep. 50 of you joining the same party and going, guess what? Your numbers just went up dramatically and we're not tolerating your shit. Yep. And you're not turning us into the party that is. We're turning you into the party we need. Yep. yep. Like yep. democracy is there to make things possible, but it requires a significant number of people to make things happen. And that's what wouldn't have happened if I got involved in politics 20 years ago. <laughs> so on the microcosm, let's get a little band together and do a Ukrainian takeover, uh, scorched earth uh, party <laughs> takeover <laughs> yeah. and, yep. uh, and change the regime. Why not? Let's do yep. it. Yep. Yep. But it's going to happen because part of recognizing existential threat, the need to combine courage and compassion is it's no longer someone else's problem. Yeah, we're living in a world of so many problems because so many Western leaders were so wrapped up in their own. Isn't my life amazing? Mm. Aren't I amazing? Isn't my nothingness awesome? We're living the Australian dream. Yep. <laughs> you know, Scotty from marketing sitting at home in lockdown for COVID. Oh gosh, uh, isn't that the best comparison? Uh, I forget Ukrainian president's name. Um, Vladimir Zelensky. Zelensky, yeah, uh, hilarious comparison. I think I saw from the Chaser, which was you know Scott Morrison standing in front of bushfires. You know, I don't hold a hose, mate. And then Zelensky uh, out there with you know bulletproof vests and everything, staying yep. in his war-torn country now. Yeah, God. Yep. And knowing that there are Chechen, Chechnyan nutters, and Wagner Group mercenaries and Spetsnaz little green men all walking around with a deck of death with the top targets to shoot in the head in Ukraine on the mm. cards, knowing that there's prize money. That's what we're dealing with. Someone for whom life is so valueless and violence is so cheap that he issues a deck of death. Mm. Well, that's, I think it's going to be that's a lot not to a swallow. Day. No, it's not. It's going to be a lot to swallow for some people, but it's important. It's a reality. And 
nothing would change if, if we didn't have those realizations. So uh, and thank you very much, David, I have to say for um, enlightening us to some of these uncomfortable truths, inconvenient truths. And uh, I, I suppose as, as we get updates, maybe there'll be scope to talk about this again, but I, I really think we've sort of covered it and people can go forth and understand stuff in the articles yeah. that come out from now yeah well, we all want the world to be different but what it takes is enough people to make it different like if you all take away something from this it's you know it has to now change mm. because it has changed mm. you know putin has demonstrated that the niceness in the system can just be stomped so we need to give the niceness back a spine and a club to go don't do that again because that's the only thing he understands yeah yep agreed uh that i guess that concludes our episode yeah thank you very much david thank you tim and thank you everyone that sent in questions for tim to ask and thank you everyone who's written to me quietly to say how much they appreciated the blog and i understand why you did it quietly you know i made some uncomfortable points (laughs) that doesn't sound like you (laughs) nah can't be me (laughs) Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favorite episodes or leave a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights, or you can send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. And also, don't forget, we have merchandise. Thank you to the Oscast Network. Peace out.